What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location... This is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive Live, a Buffalo Rumbling show. My name is Bruce Nolan. I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce exclusive, welcome back. I recognize that at the time you're listening to this as a podcast, or by the time you're listening to this live, you've probably spent the last 24 hours or so digesting Buffalo Bills schedule information. And I'm not here to tell you not to digest that information, but I do kind of try to zig when everybody else is zagging. And because of that, we're going to talk about something a little bit different today than what you might be expecting to see when you pull up your podcast feed. And that's, we're going to talk about the draft classes for the Buffalo Bills AFC East rivals. One of the things we've talked about a lot in the past is how when you look at the mode in a Bills lifespan, As a Bills fan, there's means, there's medians, there's modes. And one of the modes, the things that occur the most, are your division rivals. And so we do have to kind of pay attention to them. Last year, I did an entire podcast series before the beginning of the year on ranking the special teams coaches, the offensive coordinators, the head coaches. We did a Know Thy Enemy podcast series where we broke down each one of the divisional opponents, because I think that's a big part of NFL fandom is it's not just about your team. It's also about the teams that are close to you in not just proximity, but also close to you as far as the times you're going to play them over the course of your Bills fandom, which is a lot. And because of that, you get rivalries. You start paying attention to things that your rivals are doing. And so that's what we're going to do. Not only that, you have two of your division rivals who took a young quarterback, this draft class, to compete with the guy that you already have. How good does that feel to say? The Jets and the Patriots took a player this draft because they have to get to the spot where Josh Allen is. That feels pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Tua Tungavaloa is the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. He was not picked this year, but the Miami Dolphins need him 
to get to the spot where Josh Allen is. The three other division rival teams for the Buffalo Bills are trying and hoping they get seasons out of their guys at some point soon. The way that Josh Allen had a season for the Buffalo Bills in 2020. That will validate their pick. That will validate the draft capital, the time, the energy that was invested into this quarterback. So that feels pretty good. But because of it, it's kind of a monumental draft for the AFC East as a whole. And because of that, I feel like we should talk about it. Let's level. We were going to talk about it anyway. Don't tell anyone. But we were going to talk about it anyway. Even if the Patriots hadn't selected Mac Jones, we still would have talked about it. Because I think it's important to know what your division rivals are doing, understand the strategies, and apply the same logic to them that we do to the Bills. That's one of the things we don't do a good job of as a fan base. Not the Bills fan base. No fan base does a good job of this. We don't look at other teams with the same critical eye that we look at our own team. And so all of our theories and philosophies on drafting, on free agent acquisition, we all have these philosophies that we tie up and we attach to our team. And then we throw all of them completely out the window when we're talking about a different team. It's horribly hypocritical, but we do it anyway because that's what we do. We're hypocrites. Well, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to talk about the AFC East draft class. And we're going to start with the Miami Dolphins. Sixth pick overall in the first round, Jalen Waddell. I think it's interesting to think about what the Miami Dolphins would have done if Jamar Chase was on the board. Jalen Waddle represents a specific style of receiver. And I think it's interesting to note that Miami may be doing in this offseason what the Buffalo Bills did in 2019. And that is make a significant stylistic shift in the type of receivers they are surrounding their young quarterback with. I think that's important. Remember when Andre Holmes and Kelvin Benjamin and Jeremy Curley right, were the wide receivers, it wasn't just a talent problem. Yes, there was a talent problem. But in addition to that, there was a stylistic problem. Brandon Bean had come from, Cal- come from Carolina. And in Carolina, GM Dave Gettleman had initially surrounded Cam Newton with Kelvin Benjamin and with players who were big, tall, contested catch receivers. And if you think about it, it makes sense logistically. If you have a quarterback who has a tremendous ability to make plays off structure, but doesn't have ideal or elite ball placement, why not get a guy with a gigantic catch radius? Big receivers were all the rage at that time. This was in the Mike Evans draft had Kelvin Benjamin in it. And having these players who were huge contested catch receivers felt like the obvious response to, well, his accuracy is, he's going to get it there, right? But it's not going to be exactly pinpoint. So I want a contested catch guy. I want a guy who can win with a big catch radius. And that was the same idea that Brandon Bean had 
when he initially came in to Buffalo and was surrounding Josh Allen with players. Stylistically, there was a massive shift in 2019 to John Brown and Cole Beasley. Then again, doubling down with it was Stephon Diggs. And these are receivers who can separate in the short area. Do you know what's even better for a quarterback who doesn't have absolutely elite ball placement? Someone who gives them margin for error. Margin for error is not just determined by catch radius. It's also determined by separation. The presentation of yourself as a receiver to the quarterback, look, I'm open. And if you happen to not be exactly on target, that's going to be okay. Just give it to me in a good spot. It doesn't have to be the elitist of the elite when it comes to placement. And that's the shift that happened. And I wonder if Miami is making that same shift. The acquisition of Will Fuller and Jalen Waddell makes me wonder. Is it a shift toward separation or is it a shift toward verticality? And it's a, if it's a shift toward verticality, then is it almost is it almost a, a, a push against some of the stuff that Tua Tagovailoa is good at? Historically, when he came into the NFL, we all thought Tua Tagovailoa was going to be good at the quick game with RPO concepts. That's what we thought he was going to be good at. People talked about one of the best RPO passers they've ever seen. Now they think about less of that when they see what Mac Jones did in that same RPO heavy system. Now they think a little bit less of that. But the idea was, at the time, that Tua was good in that spot. Are they trying to make Tua more vertical by adding players like Will Fuller or Tua Tungavaloa? I'm sorry, or or uh, Jalen Waddle with Tua Tungavaloa? Or are they trying to find people who can separate the short area and allow Tua to pull the trigger? Are they trying to coax him into pulling the trigger by allowing him to have receivers who can separate? So it's fascinating to see that they picked Jalen Waddell, but it'd be more fascinating if they would have had the choice between Jamar Chase and Jalen Waddell. Because if they still would have picked Jalen Waddell, that would have told me something even more. So I think it's interesting. The 18th pick, Jalen Phillips. Obviously, they're okay with the medical. And of course, he doesn't have to travel far from Miami to Miami. So they're, help, they're happy about that. But I think one of the things that's interesting is that historically, if you look at people who are students of that Patriots Belichickian defense, which obviously Flores is, there's a couple hallmarks of that scheme. And one of the hallmarks is they do a good job of scheming up pressure. And sometimes because of that, they don't put the same amount of value on people to win one-on-ones. We talked a a little bit about this when we talked about the Ravens' defensive scheme. And I think it's interesting that the Pats scheme that the Miami Dolphins run under Brian, Brian Flores, they were 31st in the league in pass rush win rate. 31st in the league. And they were third in blitzing. So, yeah... They had a good defense and they were winning with timely turnover defense, but they had to allocate a resource to do it. I think it's interesting because the Dolphins picked a corner last year, even though they already had two 
three significant corners on the outside. They end up picking Noah Igbenogany. And I wondered if it was their coverage over pass rush. And then they were heavy blitzing during the year. And I thought, well, did they get the corners so that they could have those people be on islands and still get away with the blitz? But then they pick Jalen Phillips. And you're like, no, they would probably prefer not to have to blitz so much. So it's this interesting philosophical back and forth as you start to see these teams build with their preferences. And so I think that Jalen Phillips is a swing at a player who a lot of people consider to be the best pass rusher in the draft. And I don't think he's there at 18 if there aren't concerns. I think he's every bit the top five Bosa, Miles Garrett style, Khalil Mack style prospect if there are no questions about him. The fact that he's there at 18 is only a result of that and not a result of his physical talent. So I wasn't overly pleased that the Miami Dolphins got Jalen Phillips because I would very much like him to bust out now. That would be, when I say bust out, I mean that in the bad way, not in the good way. 236. So 36 pick overall in the second round. Javon Holland, safety, Oregon. Anytime you talk about this Flores, Belichickian defense, versatility is a huge part of it. Belichick likes it, and Flores likes it. Javon Holland played single high stuff early in his career at Oregon. He was more of a Micah Hyde, deep safety. He was your traditional Jairus Bird style deep safety. But then later on in his career, he started playing down in the box and man coverage in the slot. So being able to have that type of versatility on the back end gives them those smart, heady, versatile safeties that they like so much in that particular defense. I saw Javon Holland go in a lot of back half of the first round mock drafts. I think it's good value for them at 36. At 42, Liam Eichenberg, who I mocked in the first round to the Colts. So that was... Pretty good value, in my opinion. Liam Eikenberg, I think it's important to note at this point, might play right tackle for the Dolphins, even though he played left tackle most of the time at Notre Dame. And the reason why that's significant is we have a tendency to forget that Tua Tungavaloa is left-handed, which means the right tackle is his blind side. So having a boring just gets the job done sort of tackle isn't necessarily an indictment of Austin Jackson, although I'm not an Austin Jackson guy. I wasn't high on them when they picked him last year, but it also allows them to move Robert Hunt to guard, which is something that they probably want to do. Although I I think he, he held up okay at right tackle. I think he's ideally a guard. I think that there's a little bit of a Cody Ford phenomenon with Robert Hunt. I think he's better as a guard. 81st pick. Overall, in the third round, pour one out for a lot of my fellow Bills content creators because the Miami Dolphins picked Hunter Long, tight end Boston College. This is an interesting thing for me because the Dolphins already had a pretty stocked tight end room. And I wonder, is this insurance against Jacecki leaving next year? And this further complicates the whole what type of offense are we going to see from the Miami Dolphins, because if you recall correctly, Chan Gailey is no longer the offensive coordinator there. Now they have co-offensive coordinators, and we don't really know what it's going to look like. 
But I thought the Dolphins were okay in 12 personnel last year. But again, a lot of 12 personnel is based around a package that includes play-action boot work. You see this in Cleveland. You see it in Tennessee. You're going to see it in Atlanta this year. You saw it in L.A. This is 12 personnel, play-action boot, jet motion. Like This is kind of all packaged together. And if you have a quarterback who historically was good out of the shotgun with RPO concepts in the quick game, but now are you investing in more 12? Like, I don't What are they doing? I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm not like, oh my gosh, pulling my hair out. What are you doing? It's just fascinating because I don't know what it's going to look like. So one of the things that I'm really interested to see this offseason is what is it exactly the Miami Dolphins offense is going to actually look like? And the Hunter Long pick is part of that. Then in the seventh round, they took Lormel Coleman, offensive tackle from UMass. If you're going to take a tackle late in the draft, what do you do? You swing on traits. And boy, did they swing on traits. Dude has crazy wingspan. He's an albatross. And he's an athlete. He's an athlete. You take a swing on traits in the seventh round. It's a Chantrell Henderson sort of a swing. That's what you do. That's absolutely what you do. At 244, they finally took a running back, which a lot of people thought they were going to do at 36 until Javante Williams got taken by the Broncos who trade up in front of them and took him. Jared Dokes, running back Cincinnati. He's a rotational power back. I don't think we're in any sort of danger of him becoming some sort of elite running back. I don't think he has those traits. He's a rotational power back. So what this means is that you're going to get Miles Gaskin again and Salman Aved from Miami. And that's the kind of players you can expect to get from them. So it's really funny because... When it comes to running backs in the first round, you all know exactly where I stand. So I was rooting really hard for the Miami Dolphins to pick a running back at 18. And they picked Jalen Phillips, and I was sad. And then as it gets into the second round, I don't want them to take a running back anymore because I love Javante Williams. I think he's a great running back. He was my favorite running back in the draft. We've established this already. So it's interesting because if you think about Bruce's interest in seeing the Dolphins take a running back, it's almost like a modified bell curve. It's an inverted one. So at the very beginning, I'm like, yes, take a running back. Come on, take a running back, take a running back. And then we get to the second round, and I'm like, no, no, don't take a running back. Don't take a running back. In the third round, I'm like, don't take a running back. Don't take a back. And then we get to the seventh round, I'm like, yes, take a running back now. Take a running back now. <laughs> it's this weird inverted bell curve for me when it comes to wanting the Dolphins to take a running back. Overall, I think it's a good class for Miami. Obviously, this class is going to look a lot better if Tua Tungavaloa ends up being a good player. Because he'll be able to make use of Jalen Waddell. He'll be able to make use of Hunter Long. And I also think that the switch from Lee and Weikaberg to from left tackle to right tackle, I don't think it's going to be a problem. His technique's good enough that it's not going to be a problem. But it's a little bit of a risk. I think Javon Holland's a very, very safe pick. I think he's a plug-and-play, versatile safety. And Jalen Phillips, if he hits a ceiling, is a scary man. So I think this is a high upside class for sure. I think it's a high upside class. But I think that there's enough risk taken that you can see a path to looking back on it in three years and going, yeah, that wasn't a very good idea. So it's not like it's completely safe. And there are no draft classes that are completely safe. But there's enough bustability in there that makes you kind of wonder what's up. 
I got Mike with me on the line. Mike, you got a take, man. Yeah, how we doing, bros? Dude, it's a party all the time. How about you, man? How you doing? Doing fine, doing fine. Uh, I was just thinking about how the Dolphins could have easily just sat at three and taken Trey Lance. And, hey, if Tua doesn't work out, trade him. I think it's crazy how uh, the Jets blow one play and they end up losing out on Trevor Lawrence. And then mm-hmm. the Jets are picking next. Or the Dolphins are picking next, I'm sorry. And they could have easily taken a quarterback there. And this draft class would have been defining. I agree with that. That's a good point, Mike. That's a really good point. So I think the interesting thing about the Dolphins not taking a quarterback is that it's not like it's unprecedented. We just saw it happen. And I think that a couple of years ago, we would think that was insanity. Just the idea. Almost regardless of how Tua played, we still would have thought it was crazy. We would have been like, that's insane. What are you doing? You're just wasting all these assets. And then Arizona does it. It immediately gets better because Kyler Murray is better than Josh Rosen. So when you have a scenario like that now, you think, well, it's not really that crazy anymore. You don't think it's insane. So they had an option now because they traded their left tackle to Houston and got back the third overall pick from Laramie Tunsil. Because that happened, they had a crack at another one. Them trading down to 12 and then back up to six That is their absolute line in the sand that says, hey, I think Tua is the guy. Or at least I think he's reasonably – he reasonably has an opportunity to be the guy. Because I think the interesting thing to think about about Miami is if Tua is not the guy, but he's like almost the guy, right? If he's sort of the guy, if he's maybe a little bit the guy – then the Dolphins might be bad enough that they need a new guy, but they might be good enough that they can't get a new guy. I think that's fascinating, too, because then they get stuck in this weird quarterback purgatory that we all knew the Bills were in for so long. Now, the Bills had assets to be able to trade up, but saying it's okay, I'll trade up, I'll just trade up for a guy, it's not that simple. It's not that simple because you can't always trade up for a guy. Sometimes you can. But you need to have a partner. You need to have a dancing partner. Sometimes you can't get the guy you want. So I think that's fascinating about Miami. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Jets. If you heard some noise in the background there while I was doing it, it's because my dog needed to go outside. And he was crying. And I wanted to let him outside. So I had to walk over and let him outside while I was recording this podcast. Because he's a good boy. He deserves to go outside. So the Jets, we all know, one, two. Second overall pick in the first round, Zach Wilson. The thing I think is interesting about Zach Wilson is I think it's a fit. We can have a separate argument about whether or not Zach Wilson is going to be able to be a leader of men in New York market. We can have a separate argument about the fact that he was essentially a one-year wonder in college because he played before and he wasn't good. And there really was not really a significant amount of spotlight on him before this year. We can have a discussion about that. But just talk about traits and fit. Zach Wilson, one of the things that people have criticisms about with Zach Wilson is that he didn't really succeed until BYU went to an offense. That funny story is a lot like the offense he's going to with the New York Jets. A lot of the play action looks, deeper drops, get some space between him and the offensive line, allow him to make plays. 
A lot of show off that arm talent, throw the ball down the field. 62% completion percentage on downfield throws. I mean, that's, that's, that's big, deep throws. It wasn't like he was, you know, this is not the Tua Tungavailoa, you know, RPOs with elite sort of receivers around him. It's a completely different argument. Now, you could argue he wasn't pressured a lot because the BYU offensive line was really good and they didn't play anybody who could pressure him. That's true. But it's, it's almost like an inverse Tua argument if you want to criticize Zach Wilson. So I think it's funny that you can criticize him for the type of offense he played in, which ironically enough, I think is a good fit for the offense he's going to play in. So I think that's interesting. We can have a separate discussion over whether or not you think Zach Wilson or Justin Fields was QB2 in this draft. But I think a lot of people looked at Zach Wilson and his ability to make plays by throwing the ball from multiple different platforms and off script and said, that's the new quarterback in the NFL. This is the way quarterbacking is done now in the NFL. Defenses are too good. They're going to guess right. You're not always good. You have to be elite in mental processing and anticipation. If you are going to be an accuracy and ball placement, if you're going to be able to make plays and not have any ability to create plays off of structure, you have to have those elite traits. We're going to talk about that later when we talk about the Patriots and Mac Jones. You have to have those elite traits. And so with those traits being exhibited by Zach Wilson, you think, okay, it makes sense. I understand why they did that. Then one of the shockers of the draft, the Jets traded up. They traded 23, 66, and 86 for 14 and 143. And they took Elijah Vera Tucker. This is the beginning of the Jets saying, hey, I don't think we quite did this right with Sam Darnold. I don't think we really got him the help he needed. One of the popular narratives this offseason for other teams, content creators, is going to be we need to do for our quarterback what the Buffalo Bills did for Josh Allen. First off, that's awesome. The fact that the Buffalo Bills could have written a book on how to properly develop a quarterback, all while the New York Jets were busy dragging Sam Darnold through the mud. I think that's fascinating. I think the fact that this team properly developed a franchise quarterback has kind of created a roadmap. Now, not every quarterback is Josh Allen. I really want everyone to go looking for the next Josh Allen. As a Bills fan, that's what I want. Because that's not a thing. Josh Allen is a unique sort of individual. He's an oddity. He's an improbability. You don't go find the next Josh Allen. So it's not always going to work out. But some people are going to look at what the Buffalo Bills did surrounding Josh Allen with talent and protection and said, look, that's how you do it. If they got that out of Josh Allen with this blueprint, if we follow that blueprint, we can have our own Josh Allen too. And I'll be like, okay, well, you're half right. They did develop Josh Allen correctly, and they did support him with talent and free agent signings on the offensive line and drafted players, and they did all this stuff. But that wasn't what made Josh Allen Josh Allen. That just allowed the organization to not be a hindrance to Josh Allen's development. Josh has still got to go out there and get better mechanically he still needs to make the changes he made and he did work ethic wise he still needs to do the things he did and he did them but the best thing the organization can do is get out of the way don't be a hindrance 
I'm not saying you have to have all pro receivers at every position and all pro offensive linemen. Just don't be a net negative to your quarterback. If you look around and go, holy crap, that's a net negative to his development. If we don't fix that, that could damage his development. That could damage the trajectory. It's like the formative years as your childhood. You're always really careful with children that you're not making some sort of drastic mistake during their formative years because you know they're developing and they're susceptible to things. So you don't want to screw it up. So just don't screw it up. And the Jets screwed it up. And I think trading up for Elijah Vera Tucker is them going, we're not going to screw it up again. Now, is it rich to trade up for a guard? Yes, absolutely. That's that's rich. That's a bit, bit rich for my blood, for sure. Especially when, if you think me yelling about corners is bad now, imagine if I was a Jets fan. They have three bad corners. And for some reason, Brian Poole is still unsigned. And he was their best corner. I don't, I don't get it. Their nickel guy was their best corner, and he's still out in the free agent market. I've given up yelling about the Bills wanting to sign him because they clearly don't want to do that. But it's not like the Jets don't have other options, but they still chose to trade up and take Elijah Vera Tucker, who I think is a good player, by the way. I think he's one of the cleanest projections in this draft. I'd be shocked if he wasn't a good player from day one. Then, 234, they take Elijah Moore, which might seem odd because a lot of people think Elijah Moore is a slot guy, and they have Jamison Crowder, who's a really good slot guy. But I think one of the things we're overlooking is in this particular system, in the Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan style, Arthur Smith style, in this sort of offense that we already talked about, in the play-action heavy, jet motion offense, lots of motion, lots of play-action. You need a wide receiver who can carry the ball. I think that's valuable to have a wide receiver who can carry the ball on those jet motions. You've seen this with Isaiah McKenzie. The threat of having Isaiah McKenzie carry the ball is helpful to be able to hold the backside linebacker on run plays and also be able to occasionally outflank the defense. I think Elijah Moore can be that also for the New York Jets. And I think it's just a part we haven't really talked about. In addition to the fact that he's a good player, I really like Elijah Moore. I would have been completely okay with him at 30 for the Buffalo Bills. But I think it's important to have a wide receiver who can apparently, you know, take some of those handoffs instead of just being a fake of those handoffs. He's not just a decoy. The Los Angeles Rams have Robert Woods for that role. He carries the ball a couple times a game typically because you need to have a threat on the backside or else that can just be ignored. You have to have a threat to be able to hold that backside linebacker. So I think the Elijah Moore pick is good, not just because he's a good receiver, also because he's a good fit. 107 overall, fourth round, Michael Carter. Carter was one of the last bastions of, okay, I think this guy can be something in the NFL. I didn't think this was an overly good running back class at all. And so Michael Carter was kind of the last one in the tier of, okay, I feel pretty good with him. And the Jets ended up getting him. And they probably need him because the Jets didn't have a great running back room last year. I think there were a lot of people who actually thought Carter was the better UNC running back. I disagree with that very vehemently. Javante Williams was my RB1. You know this. But I think the Jets did a good job of getting the last guy 
in a tier that I thought was a reasonable player to come in and compete for a meaningful contribution. We talked about meaningful contribution yesterday. 146, Jamie and Sherwood. We're going to tie this pick in with 146 and 186. So 146 was Jamie and Sherwood. 186 was Hamza Nasruddin. This is where you get those safety slash linebacker combos for the Jets. Now, Hamza ended up falling. A lot of people thought he was going to be a third or fourth round pick. He ended up falling because there were concerns about a surgically repaired knee toward ACL. So, again, leading up to the draft, we always talked about if someone starts to fall, it's probably medical. In this case, he fell. It was medical. So, I think that you're starting to see a trend here in the NFL with these smaller safeties. Actually, bigger safeties, smaller linebackers. These people who are playing the 215s, the 220s. They're trying to find... A Matt Milano. That's what they're trying to find. They're trying to find a linebacker who can run to the ball and also be in coverage because offenses are putting linebackers in a significant issue in today's NFL. You can't have Brandon Spikes roam in the middle anymore. That's not a thing. You can't. You need linebackers who can run and you need linebackers who can cover. And so that's what we're seeing from teams. In the fifth round, 154, they took another Michael Carter, Michael Carter II. And here's the irony, okay? So Michael Carter II is a cornerback from Duke. The Michael Carter the Jets drafted in the fourth round is Michael Carter from UNC. Same name, rival colleges. So I thought that was funny. But I mentioned that they still hadn't re-signed Brian Poole. They have Javelin Guidry there as a corner. Really, really fast guy who is basically just a really, really fast guy at corner. They need another nickel. I don't know why they don't just re-sign Brian Poole. I thought he was very good, but they need another nickel. Michael Carter can allow them to do that. Jason Pinnock was their pick at 175. Again, if you're going to take a swing on a corner or a lineman, a lineman or a linebacker or anybody in the fifth, sixth, and seventh round, swing on traits, baby. Swing on traits. And that's what Jason Pinnock does. He's got good size. He's got good speed. He just doesn't have great tape. At 200, they took Brandon Eccles. He's the other University of Kentucky corner. The one you knew was Kelvin Joseph. He is, again, swing on traits. Runs a 4-3-5. But he's very new to the position. So, again, swing on traits. Jonathan Marshall, defensive tackle, Arkansas, was their pick at 207. Again, swing on traits. He's a nose tackle, but he runs a 481. So overall, I like the Jets draft. I think philosophically they did the things you're supposed to do to try to maximize your draft class, which is take people who are fits early and take people who you can swing on traits with late. Obviously, if Zach Wilson doesn't end up being a good player, none of this is going to matter. Because everything else will trickle out from that. And that's a similar theory to the Miami draft class. If Tua doesn't end up being a player, a lot of this stuff gets lessened. The quarterback makes every offensive player better. They make every defensive player better. That's why they're the most important position in sports. That's why they get paid all that money. So overall, I like the draft class. We're going to move on to the Patriots draft class. But Jack in the comments 
says, how much would Houston have loved to have that third third round pick? Sorry, third, third pick. Knowing or not knowing what is now happening with Watson. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They thought that they were solving a problem, Jack, by trading away two firsts for Laramie Tunsil. That's what they thought they were doing. They're solving a problem. And the problem was, we have our guy, we have to protect him. They didn't know that Deshaun Watson was going to go through all this nonsense. So because of that, they went all in on Deshaun Watson. And then what ha- ends up happening is they went all in and the rest of the team just sort of devolved around him. Houston was not good last year. So if you have one piece, Houston's a great example of how you can have a quarterback. But if the rest of your team is trash, you're in trouble. Deshaun Watson's extremely good quarterback. But... They had Laramie Tunsil, congratulations. But none of their other draft picks really hit. Bill O'Brien wasn't a great coach, and the rest of the organization just sort of eroded underneath him. So that wasn't good. So we're going to move on to the Patriots draft class. Of course, the shining gem. One fifteen, Mac Jones. The thing I think is interesting about the Patriots picking Mac Jones is that much in the way that I like to zig when everyone else is zagging when it comes to content creation, the Buffalo Bills, the Patriots are zigging when everyone's zagging as far as quarterback evaluation. I think 20 years ago, Mac Jones would have been a lot higher of a pick. But what teams are looking for in quarterbacks has changed. I mentioned that they want someone who can provide value off of schedule. Mac Jones is not that guy. I'm not saying he's a terrible athlete because he's not a terrible athlete. But the second phase of the play is not what he excels at. So let's go for accuracy, decision-making, over athleticism, arm talent, and off-schedule and off-platform ability. They're bucking the trend. Now, they might look at that and go, Tom Brady's still winning Super Bowls. He doesn't have those things. That's true. Tom Brady, much like Josh Allen in this way, is a unicorn. Tom Brady and Drew Brees are unicorns. Drew Brees is now retired. They have elite mental processing and ball placement. And so because of those things, they're able to make up for that. Plus, Brady is an elite pocket negotiator. He can navigate and negotiate that pocket with the best of them. He's always just out of reach. And he's not a good athlete, but he has a good feel for the pocket, an instinct for it. These are elite traits that are just hard to find. Mac Jones does not have that pocket awareness. So for me, I'm not too worried about Mac Jones. I'm not saying he couldn't be a good player. He absolutely could be a good player. But I, in my mock draft, had them trading up for Justin Fields. I think Justin Fields is a better prospect than Mac Jones. So this is an ideal situation relative to what I could have gotten. At 38th overall, they traded up 46, 122, 139 for 38. They took Christian Barmore. We talk a lot about New England adding a bunch of receivers this offseason, adding tight ends. We don't really talk a lot about them remaking their front seven on defense. Devon Godchow, Dirty Harry, I'm sorry, Dirty Henry. Anderson, they added him. 
And now they trade up for an Alabama offensive line who's got all the talent in the world. But obviously Bill Belichick and Nick Saban are close. So if Nick Saban signs off and says, listen, here's what you got to do to make sure you're pressing the right buttons for Christian Barmore, then Bill Belichick's probably going to know that. Then at the 96th pick in the third round, they took Ronnie Perkins. Remember, the Patriots got Matt Judon as well. And I just said that one of the things the Patriots' defense stylistically is good at is they're good at scheming up pressure. Judon's someone who excels in that role. He excelled in that role in the in the Baltimore Ravens' defense. So that's that too. And then Ronnie Perkins brings another 250-pound edge rusher who I didn't think was going to be there at 96. So that's another addition to the Patriots' front seven. At 120th, they took Ramondre Stevenson. Again, sort of bucking the trend, but right on pace with what you would expect from New England. Look at what New England's been able to do with power backs in the past. LeGarrette Blunt, A.J. Dillon, Sony Michelle. It's not uncommon for the New England running backs to be a power guy. And Ramondre Stevenson is one of those players. So in a different offense, I might think this is worse of a fit. However, Josh McDaniels has tons of experience with making power running backs work. So again, just like Mac Jones makes sense in New England, Ramondre Stevenson makes sense in New England. 177, Cameron McGrone, linebacker, Michigan. He's a stash right now due to an ACL tear. He's a stash. He's someone who probably is not going to play in 2021. But I think he's got some shots, for sure. Side note, what is it with the New England Patriots and collecting like, Michigan defensive players? They got Chase Winovich when I wanted Chase Winovich. You remember correctly, two years ago, I was all in on Chase Winovich. Then they got Josh Uche last year. And now they triple down and take Cameron McGrone. Now, I just think it's an interesting... Alabama and Michigan apparently seems to be the the places where the New England Patriots like to dip their draft wagon in there. It's interesting because there's been some discussion with the Buffalo Bills and Brandon Bean and his propensity for ACC players. At some point this offseason, I'm going to try to see if I can get to it. It's on the list, but I don't really know. Joshua Bledsoe, you know all about Joshua Bledsoe because you listened to my podcast before the draft. I mocked Joshua Bledsoe to the Buffalo Bills. They ended up getting the sixth round. I thought he was a sixth round guy. But he can pair with Duggar, who they picked last year, to give them versatility on the back end. We talked about this. We talked about Miami Dolphins. Versatile defenders, versatile safeties who can do multiple things. Disguise the coverages. Don't know where the pressure is coming from. Don't know what kind of coverage you've got. If you can make the quarterback hold the ball, the rush can get home, even if you don't have dynamic pass rushers. That's one of the fundamental principles of the Belichick defense. So it gives them that. 197, William Sherman, offensive lineman from Colorado, tackle guard versatility. Again, right on brand. I think it's really important for us to understand brands. And understand what certain teams like to do. It's one of the things I struggle with. I'm sitting down trying to do my 256, 259 pick 
mock draft every year is I try to stay on brand. I try and understand, okay, this is what this team likes to do. These are the types of athletes they like to draft. This is the type of defense they run. This is the type of offense they run. And you start to see things. It's really fun. It's so fun when you start to see all these things start to connect in your head. You're like, okay, Mac Jones fits with the Patriots. Ramondre Stevenson. Okay, I see where they're going with this. And this is one of those picks for me. William Sherman. They love that tackle guard versatility with the Patriots. They have a lot of people his over history who have been tackle guard versatile. Trey Nixon, wide receiver, UCF. Again, swing on traits late. He was a big-time recruit coming out of high school. Runs a 4-4-3. Just didn't quite reach the Gay Davis levels at UCF. So because of that, you take a swing on traits late. And that's the Patriots draft class. We have been through all three draft classes. All of them. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to try and get some almighty takes in, and then we're going to get out of here. Stick with me. We'll be right back. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. We are going to go to an almighty take here that I got sent to me in a five-star review. And he said on his five-star review on the Apple Podcast app store, said his almighty take is barring significant injuries. Singletary and Moss will each get a thousand plus all purpose yards in 2021. Dable will correct the run game issues and find ways to incorporate each more into the passing game. AJ Tharp said that. First off, AJ, thanks for the review and thanks for making, you know, making your take. 
So I think the interesting thing about this is if you look at last year, Zach Moss had 481 yards rushing and 95 yards receiving. So just under 600 yards when it comes to all-purpose rushing and receiving. Because neither one of them, when I say all-purpose, I mean yards from scrimmage because neither one of them are particularly returners. Then when you look at Devin Singletary, he had 687 yards rushing and 267 yards receiving. So, you know, okay, six, seven, eight, nine, fifty-ish. I don't think it's insane. I don't think it's insane to have two people with a thousand yards of all-purpose yards. The thing is, I just don't think there's going to be enough touches to go around to get him to that. I mean, if you think about it this way, Devin Singletary had 307 rushes and 67. No, no, no. He had 100. Sorry, 156 rushes and 38 receptions. So just shy of 200 touches. Just shy of 200 touches there. And then Zach Moss had 112 rushes and 14 catches. So that's 126 touches. I don't think we got enough touches to get there. I don't think it's insane for one of them to go over 1,000 all-purpose yards. You know, get 600 and 400. I just don't think you're going to get two people with six four. But I don't think it's crazy. I'm going to go somewhat improbable on the take. Just somewhat. Because I don't think it's insane. I think it's one of those really good takes that is right on the border of being somewhat improbable and somewhat probable. Those are the best takes. When I'm sitting there going, I don't know. Which one do I pick? I like the meme of the guy in the, in the red suit with the, you know, dot blotting his brow, trying to pick on two buttons. That's what it is. Bruce is a meme. So we're going to get that almighty take, and then we're going to go another one. We got time for one more. Alex McEnroy says in his almighty take, Bruce, I've wanted to ask you this for a few, few weeks now, but I feel like I should wait until after the draft since it's a little bit off topic. Off topic. We're both fans of football and we're both fans of MMA. So I'd like to pose a question and give my take while you give yours for football. Think of it as an intersport tag team, tables, ladders, and chairs, almighty takeoff. Well, I like it already. The question is this. What is an underutilized aspect of the sport that will soon be exploited by a few individuals who are ahead of the game, causing the rest to follow? For football, this could be anything from a play call to a savvy cap management method. I'll go MMA, specifically grappling. I firmly believe that the highest levels of MMA still showcase white belt level leg locks. There are historical reasons for this I won't get into. The average MMA fan who has never trained still recognizes several positions and realizes that those different positions form a hierarchy of positional advantage. Broadly put, it's preferable to have top position and mount better than side control, better than guard. The average MMA fan probably doesn't realize that a similar hierarchy of leg entanglements also exists. This is because the overwhelming majority of leg locks seen in MMA are Hail Mary plays where the attacker gives up position and either finishes the leg lock or gets utterly pulverized by the hammer fists of justice. As more high-level grapplers enter into MMA, we will soon see grown men get their legs methodically tied up like a pretzel, much like how a good wrestler can slowly advance without giving up any space. It'll be a talking point for a while until everyone ups their leg lock games. Such is the circle of life. It's too off topic for the show. I understand. I still love to hear your metagame on football. Okay, so 
obviously it's not it's not too not too off topic so for me the thing that is currently i think important when you look at the landscape of football is something that you're starting to see get utilized a lot but it's still probably underutilized in a lot of offenses and that's play action Play action has been able to expand the definition of what we consider to be acceptable quarterback play. I think that's really important. Teams need to recognize that finding Tom Brady doesn't happen. Finding Drew Brees doesn't happen. And with how good defenses have gotten in the NFL, how sophisticated they are, what you're having is you're not only going to find them less because there's less of them, You're going to find less of them because the skill level necessary to be that style of passer and still be competitive is going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. So for me, play action has been able to turn people like goodness gracious. It's been able to turn people like Ryan Tannehill into acceptable quarterbacks. Jared Goff made a Super Bowl. Ryan Tannehill was an AFC championship game. This is where you talk about offenses helping quarterbacks. I talked about this a lot when I talked about Brian Dable's offense. And specifically, is it the kiddie pool or is it the deep end? And I said, it's not the kiddie pool. Sean McVay's offense is the kiddie pool. And the kiddie pool can take a a quarterback who's probably not an elite level quarterback and turn him into a Super Bowl level player. Now, at some point, you need better. This is why the Los Angeles Rams moved on from Jared Goff. This is why the Minnesota Vikings are probably going to move on from Kirk Cousins at some point in the next year or two. Because it only gets you so far. So I think it's interesting that as much as we talk about it being a cheat code for quarterbacks, it's still probably not utilized as much as it should have been. And I'm not saying that you need to always utilize it to get elite quarterback play. But if you don't have an elite quarterback, you should be doing everything in your power to get the guy you have to reasonable levels. The thing that I think is really comforting about the Bills and play action when it comes to Josh Allen is they're not a kiddie offense. Josh Allen's progression is not because Brian Dable's making it easy on him. If Josh Allen regresses, it will not be because Brian Dable was making it super easy on him. Anyone who studies the Bills offense will tell you that's not the case. So we can feel comfortable knowing that Josh Allen is not a product of the offensive system. The same thing cannot be said about the Minnesota Vikings fans or even the Browns fans. Baker Mayfield was a good good quarterback, but... The Stefanski system is the same thing that made Kirk Cousins into a reasonable quarterback who got at the time a three-year, 30 million per year, 90 million guaranteed. That's the same thing that made him look like he was a, a reasonable quarterback. So if you're the Browns fans, is it really Baker Mayfield? Now, I do think Baker Mayfield's a good quarterback, but you're going to always have this in the back of your mind. That you're playing on easy mode. It's like if you play a video game on easy and you dominate, how good are you really? You might be amazing. You don't know. But you're not going to know until the difficulty level's high. And your rewards are always going to be probably a little capped by the fact that you're playing on easy mode. 
And so that's the encouraging thing. And I think part of the way you do that is by overutilizing play action. In regards to your leg lock thing, I agree with you. One of my favorite mixed martial artists is Ryan Hall, who is the wizard. And he has found kind of a cheat code when it comes to MMA. He keeps you at distance with kicks. And then when you come into range, he dives at your legs. And he's a great leg lock artist. And you can't really figure it out. Now, nobody wants to fight him because they're afraid they're going to get their knee torn up. And they'd much rather go unconscious than get their knee torn up. Because if they go unconscious, they can be ready to fight again in another month. If they get their knee torn up, it's another year. So I do think that there's something to be said about your uh, leg lock theory when it comes to MMA. Greg in the comments section has says, how, relieves are, how relieved are you that the Bears got fields and not the Pats? Huge fan. Big fan. Really big fan. When the Bears traded up, I turned to my wife. I'm like, yes, this is it. This is it. Come on. Justin Fields. Go, 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 go. And it was Justin Fields. I'm like, yes, the Patriots are going to get stuck with Mac Jones. Now, of course, I'm going to say that Mac Jones is going to be an all-pro and torture us for the next 20 years because that's just my luck. Because we're Bills fans. This is the way it works. I kid, though, because I don't, I don't, I don't, Mac Jones is not Tom Brady. So I'm not, I'm not all that worried about it. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. 55 minutes of podcasting goodness. Thank you so much for being here, guys. Thanks for being here live. I'm going to rest my voice for a little bit. And then I'm going to hop on with Anthony from Cover One. So if you're in this show and you want to jump on there with me later, jump on with me later. By the time you're listening to this podcast, that will already have dropped on the Cover One YouTube channel. So check it out there. I will talk to you guys soon. But until then, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.